had my steel blower out the other day. You think it's winter and you can't use your power tools? Absolutely not the case with steel. S-T-I-H-L. I had to blow out the little area uh, in front of my uh, front entranceway of leaves. And also, if you have a, you know, not a huge amount of snow, I'm talking, I'm talking about a foot of snow, but if you have three or four inches, you can use that blower and, and clear out a whole area very, very quickly. SteelDealers.com. There's over 9,000 of them nationwide. S-T-I-H-L. Again, it's SteelDealers.com, a company built on real power, tools built for real people, and dealers who deliver real service. Gas, electric, or the uh, products I love most, battery-powered tools to get the job done. The good folks at Boyer's Coffee have been brewing coffee in our area since 1965. And they have a great commitment to sourcing coffee that goes beyond their desire to make it just the best cup of coffee you will uh, find anywhere. But uh, they believe in sustainable and ethical farming communities all over the world. That is where they're selecting only the best of the crop out there. So they source their coffee beans from every coffee growing region in the world, specifically locations down in Central America. And if you've ever had Boyer's Coffee, you know it tastes great to the uh, very last drop. Boyer'sCoffee.com is where you can find them online. You can order all kinds of great flavors. Do as I do. Start your day with Boyer's Coffee. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, match number three with Barkley, Mickelson, Curry, and Manning. Never, ever bet against the pro. Drew weighs in on the Drew Locke controversy. I think initially my take was, this is a farce. This is ridiculous. They should have moved the game. And a visit with former Broncos wide receiver Brandon Stokely on the Broncos, the NFL, and a miracle last-minute game-winning touchdown. Remember that ball floating in the air, and I could still see it. And then just start taking off running, and like, oh my gosh, my legs felt like they were... You know, a thousand pounds. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Hey, everybody. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We officially welcome you to the Drew Goodman Podcast number 73. We're going to talk football. We're going to talk baseball. We're going to talk a little golf as well. And our special interview this week, brought to you by Ideal Home Loans, is with the former Bronco, former Raven, played for a lot of teams, in fact. Terrific uh, slot receiver, Brandon Stokely, who's now uh, become famous in the radio business on Sports Talk on The Fan here in Denver. So we'll get to Stokely in a moment. But first, sports is about entertainment, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that is what athletics is about at the highest level. So I was all in on match number three, the day after Thanksgiving, that featured Phil Mickelson and Charles Barkley taking on the heavily favored Steph Curry and our own Peyton Manning. And it started as if, like many suspected, it was going to go the way of the plus one handicap Steph Curry and the five handicap Peyton Manning. They won the very first hole. And after that, it was an absolute blowout favoring Mickelson and Barkley. Barkley's famous hesitation was non-existent. Phil had coached him up. This guy had practiced. He was hitting fairways. He putted fabulously. His lag putting was outstanding. And you know what it you know what it almost lacked? I thought there was going to be more zingers and one-liners, but it became so lopsided that the best lines, which typically come from Barkley anyhow, but you knew Peyton was going to get involved. Um but I think they were embarrassed by how badly they were getting beaten. So the, the my favorite line of the whole match was when Barkley turned to the camera and talked to uh, Brian Anderson, who was anchoring the event. Brian's been on the on this podcast before, uh, and BA, the voice of the Milwaukee Brewers, does a lot of things uh, nationally for in the world of uh, baseball, basketball, and now golf as well. And uh, he said, "BA," which is his nickname, he said. Tell the bosses at Turner they better get uh, additional programming ready because they thought this match was going to go a lot longer than it's actually going to go. It was hysterical. Uh, but I, I was entertained. I watched every shot. And, yeah, I thought it was going to be I, – I had favored Steph Curry and I had favored Peyton Manning like everybody else. And, and I thought it was going to be uh, you know, a match that probably went down closer to the wire uh, than it did. 
You know what the um, moral of that story was? Never, ever bet against the pro. That's what Barkley said when he went in the clubhouse after. He said, what are these guys kidding? He goes, Mickelson's a pro. He's one of the best players in the history of the game. And you saw the difference when you take a really good golfer or two really good golfers in in Manning and, and Steph Curry's played in a couple of tour events through exemptions. They're out of their element. I mean, it's not a football field. It's not a basketball court. And even though there weren't fans there, naturally, there's still a lot of nerves that Steph Curry and Peyton Manning are not used to dealing with in the golf environment. And Phil kicked their ass. As long as Barkley was hitting the the golf ball somewhere that Phil could take a swipe at it, Mickelson was going to win. Never bet against the pro. It was fun, though. I still I still enjoyed that. We had talked some about that uh, last week. All right, time to move on to football. And I know there's uh, one subject we're going to get to uh, here momentarily. But uh, in the NFL, you know what's must-see television? It's pretty obvious. It's Patrick Mahomes. He is the main attraction. When he's on, you watch. When I was growing up and Paul Newman or Redford was in a film, you watched. Kevin Costner, Meryl Streep, you watched. Didn't matter if, if the film ultimately turned out to be just okay. You watched and, and went to the theater when they were in it. Well, when Patrick Mahomes is on with the Chiefs, whether they're playing Jacksonville or you know your Broncos or the Raiders, it doesn't matter. You watch. He is that entertaining. And similar to Aaron Rodgers, who's also having a glorious year again, they're like the consummate point guard. If you're open, they're going to find you. Sometimes you don't even know you're open and they find you. Just just such a joy to watch Mahomes and Rodgers. If, if they're on, I'm all in. And, you know, I think back to when I was growing up and then when I had the good fortune of, of calling games for the Nuggets for 10 years in the NBA – you think back to the athletes that you got to watch firsthand. And for me, you know, I'll always be able to tell not only my kids, which I've done, but, you know, the proverbial grandkids, that sort of thing, that I got to watch and have the best seat in the house to watch Michael Jordan. As a kid, I got to watch Tom Seaver. You know, a generation ago, folks said they got to watch Jim Brown or Gail Sayers or, or as my dad did, Willie Mays or the great Oscar Robertson. You know, these generational type of talents. Well, folks, we're going to say the same thing about Patrick Mahomes. I know he's only in his third year, but you're going to be able to say that one day about Mahomes. You certainly can say that about Aaron Rodgers, and and you can say that about the 43-year-old Tom Brady. Um, They're all-timers. They are really all-timers. So um, it was a great joy this past weekend to watch those guys uh, put on magnificent performances once again. All right, there was a little bit of a controversy uh, surrounding the Denver Broncos game this past weekend, and I think it was summed up nicely by Vic Fangio. I was disappointed um, on a couple levels in that that our quarterbacks put us in this position, that it put, our quarterbacks put the league in that position. You know, there's we count on them to be the leaders of the team and, you know, leaders of the offense. And uh, those guys made a mistake and that, that is disappointing. You know, obviously I haven't done a good enough job of um, selling the protocols to them, you know, when they're on their own. So, you know, part of that could fall on me there. So what's my take on this? I, I think initially my take was like probably many of you, I was upset. I said, this is a farce. This is ridiculous. They should have moved the game. You can't play without a quarterback. I mean, it's one thing if you're you're putting your backup out there. Yeah, you're going to be at a decided disadvantage. But the Broncos literally had no quarterback. And they had to play a young man who last played quarterback several years ago at Wake Forest and and plucked uh, Mr. Hinton off the practice squad. And, and I give that kid, you know, great kudos. Uh, he didn't even get to practice. It's not like he practiced all week and was trying to, re, you know, remember, you know, a handful of plays. I mean, they gave him about, I think he said like 20 plays or so. And 
off he went. They ran the they ran the the shotgun with running backs, uh, you know, basically playing a you know a, almost a single wing type of offense. Uh, and I looked at it initially. I was really I'm going to watch the Broncos anyhow, but. I had that kind of morbid curiosity that we all have when you pass a, a car wreck. You hope everybody's okay, naturally, and you creep by very slowly. Well, then you drive on. And in this particular case, it was easy to drive on quickly because it wasn't compelling. It was not entertaining even in a Three Stooges manner. It was just bad. It was bad. It was non-competitive. And so then you arrive at what Vic Fangio came to. And I, and I think within what he said there in the soundbite, you get a little more insight that instead of blaming the league, even though he's not going to come out and blatantly do that, if you listen, I mean, he realizes that the Broncos have to shoulder the blame. The, the league has a policy in this craziest of years. And that is if you have a virus breakout, a COVID breakout, they'll move the game. That's why the Ravens have been moved. and We've seen the Steelers move. We've seen some games move, though every game has gotten played. But they said from the outset that they're not going to move a game because of a competitive imbalance. In the Broncos situation, there was no breakout. There was a player who had tested positive in the quarterback room in Driscoll. And then through contact tracing and the fact that the rest of the room was negligent at some point in time for not wearing masks, that there's no reason to move the game. It's not a health risk. And after dissecting this and thinking about this, um, yeah, my initial reaction, as I said, was they got to move the game. It's unfair. I mean, that's the one position you can't play it if you don't have a quarterback, can you get by if, if, you know, your whole inside linebacker room um, went down? Yeah. You could probably play, you know, dime coverage and, and throw four safeties on the field at the same time and, and try to play defense that way. And maybe you'd have a chance. You have no chance without a quarterback, but when you listen to what the league said and when you watch what they've done, almost fall on the, uh, on, on the side of, you know, they did what they said they were going to do. And Vic Van- Fangio, again, was saying as much when he reprimanded, um, you know, the quarterbacks for not doing the right thing. And I think that was telling. And I also think when you couple what Fangio said with Drew Locke's apology, that's all you need to know. It stinks. It would really here's where it really would stink, folks. If the Broncos, you know, were eight and two going into that weekend and battling for first place or something, you know, in the AFC West, and then they were just basically handed a loss where they couldn't compete. The Broncos, as we all know, unfortunately, are not going anywhere. And if you want to be, you know, try to spin it in a positive way, you know, maybe maybe it has them ultimately move up a couple of spots uh, in the first round, and maybe they get a shot at a, at a had a potentially better player. I know it was a bad look, and I know it stinks, but I get it. All right, time for our a new segment, actually. Our question of the week. And if you're wondering, hey, how do I pose a question of the week? Well, the way you can pose your question of the week is multifaceted. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Make, make sure you find the blue check mark. Uh, the Drew Goodman uh, podcast on Facebook, our website, thedrewgoodmanpodcast.com. So fire questions away, and uh, we'll select one each week and uh, utilize it uh, within the confines of the podcast. So this week it comes from, uh, as I understand, from Charlie. Drew, will Todd Helton get more consideration for the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2021 than he has the past few years? All right, Charlie, that's a great question because the Hall of Fame voting has commenced. And this summer, knock on wood, Larry Walker, who, like Derek Jeter, was going to get enshrined last summer, will have their day in Cooperstown. And it's going to be a marvelous day for Walker, obviously, but for all Rockies fans 
who got to watch Larry Walker play. And also it kind of pushes the, the Coors Field debate more toward the back burner. And with Todd Helton now on the ballot for the third time and Walker getting in, and there's no clear-cut slam-dunk Hall of Famer on this year's ballot, you are hearing more and more people take a good long look, who are voters, at what Todd Helton accomplished. And you know who helps Todd Helton's candidacy? D.J. LeMahieu. You say, what are you talking about? Larry Walker helps Helton's candidacy. Yeah, that's a little more obvious because Walker, former Rocky, going to wear a Rocky's hat, gets in. And they put to bed, or at least were able to push to the side a little bit more, the disparity between home and road. They're explaining it in a much more understandable way to folks that maybe didn't uh, spend enough time on it in the past. And this is why, that's why we come to DJ LeMayhew. LeMayhew and what he's done as a New York Yankee when he had similar splits, great at Coors Field, just okay out on the road, and people said, is this guy going to hit? He's just a Coors Field creation. No, DJ LeMayhew is an elite hitter. And now he's the first guy in the modern era to have won a, a batting title in both leagues. Now that he's done it in New York for two years, now I know that this year was a 60-game season, but he's finished, listen to this, folks, not just you know throwing out singles. DJ LeMayhew has slugged his way to a third and fourth place finish in the MVP voting the last two years in the American League. And people are realizing that the road numbers are always going to be significantly less than the home numbers at Coors Field. And it goes well beyond that Coors Field is a great place to hit at altitude. It has to do with what it does to the body, what it does to the baseball, and how players who call Colorado home have to make far more adjustments than anybody else in the sport. And now we've been championing that and barking about it for years. And finally, the rest of the baseball universe, and maybe most importantly, Hall of Fame voters have come around to that. Let me throw out some things on Todd Helton. He hit 316. His on-base percentage was 414. His slugging percentage for his career was 539. His OPS of 953, on-base plus slugging, is 18th all-time. The only guys in front of him that are not Hall of Famers are named Barry Bonds, Manny Ramirez, and Mark McGuire. And we understand right now why those three are not in. Mike Trout is also on that list ahead of him. He's eighth. He's not in because we know he's still playing. By the way, one, two, and three. Ruth, Williams, Gehrig, Bonds is fourth. And we'll talk about this on another day. But I think Barry Bonds may get in very soon. And he deserves to be in. I will leave it at that right now, but we'll get to get to that in a future show. 592 doubles for Helton, 369 homers, over 1,400 ribbies. He has three gold gloves. Here's another one. Here's a little nugget for you. You know how many times he struck out? A hundred times in a season or more? Once. One time. And between 1993 and 2003, the only guy really better than him in the sport was Barry Bonds. His numbers between 99 and 03 were ridiculous. He had an OPS of around 1,100 during that time frame. And one other point, as I champion his candidacy, and hopefully, ultimately, his enshrinement. His road OPS, so we just talked about road, and yes, it's, it's going to be down when you call Coors Field home. His road OPS of 855 is higher than Hall of Famers Dave Winfield, Tony Gwynn, George Brett, Eddie Murray. Are you kidding me? And I think voters are taking a closer look. Ryan Spader, who's a great follow on Twitter, and we'll have him on at some point, 
started this exercise last year, and I commend him. He reached out to all players of all variety, anybody who played in the big leagues, um, to give him their Hall of Fame ballot. And and as I said, he's done it the last couple of years. And Helton, among his peers, among his brethren, was, was almost a unanimous selection. And I've always felt this. I've said this before. Players know. They know better than anyone. They certainly know better than than fans. They know better than broadcasters. They know better, quite frankly, than coaches oftentimes. Players know who can play. Players know the impact of certain players. And so the guys that played against Helton, certainly some guys who played with Helton, but that group of folks that carry the mantle of of baseball player at the major league level, they all believe Todd Helton's a Hall of Famer. So keep your fingers crossed. And, you know, Larry Walker had to wait till his last appearance on the ballot, his 10th and final year. Again, for Helton, it's just his uh, third time. His first year, 16.5%. Last year, he jumped to 29.2%, trending way further ahead than, than Walker was at a similar point uh, in his candidacy. I think now, and I, and I didn't used to think this, I think Helton's going to get in. And I used to think he's going to fall just a little bit short. But that's how the education of Coors Field, the education of how difficult it is to go on the road when you're playing at altitude, how that education has uh, has increased uh, throughout the voting body and the baseball universe. So, uh, Charlie, thank you very much for that question. Much appreciated. And uh, sorry for the long-winded answer, but I'm, but I'm excited now about uh, Todd's not, I was always excited about his candidacy, but about the prospects of him getting in. All right, we're going to swing back to football now and uh, visit on our Ideal Home Loans interview of the week with a guy who's become a radio personality in town, but he had a terrific NFL career and uh, he's got a lot of stories to tell. We're going to get the perspective on uh, a number of topics right now with the uh, former Bronco, former uh, two-time world champion, Brandon Stokely. Well, Stoke, you and I were just visiting a moment ago, and to say this has been a strange year or the strangest of years would be a grand understatement. How are you holding up? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, it's, you just got to adjust to the situation at hand, and you know, everybody's lives have been disrupted, uh, disrupted uh, one way or another, and so you just got to kind of roll with the punches and try to make the best out of uh, the situation that we've been dealt. And uh, hopefully moving forward, we can get this thing under control and get back to uh, normalcy. You know, it's funny. Whatever level of athletics you participated in, obviously you participated for a long time at that at the absolute highest level. Um, I, I, I still, the levels I played at, I'm drawn to things I, uh, I remember when I was coach and, and things I say as a coach to try to get you through this year, you know, like, okay, you get knocked down, you got to get up and it's adversity. I mean, do you find yourself saying those things to you, to, you know, whether it be to yourself or maybe to your family, that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, my, my both my kids have had some injuries here. My oldest just had uh, his second surgery on his, uh, on, on, a, on the same leg within a year. And so, you know, you, you talk about the things that, you know, you think back to the, some of the things that you got when, you know, in high school from your coaches and college and the NFL and, and then you start relaying those to, to your kids. And then, like you said, Drew, then on top of that, you know, it's like, it's, it's tough times for everybody dealing with certain things. And, and, uh, so you take uh, those sayings and you, you imply, you apply them to your, uh, apply them to yourself. And so, um, yeah, uh, certainly, um, have done that um, here recently with my kids and my family, but also with myself. Yeah. Hey, listen, dude, I know how how you stay in shape, even though uh, it's been a few years since you put a helmet and shoulder pads on. Could you have gone out there and uh, played a little single wing or maybe run a little zone read? Uh, could you have been that guy? <laughs> I can't throw the football. I had a shoulder surgery my rookie year. And I don't have full range of motion. Um, and, and so I can't throw a football overhand, um, you know, further than probably five or six yards. And if I did, uh, did, if I did do it more than one or two times, my shoulder would probably pop out of uh, the socket. And 
I'd have to have surgery again. So I, I could run the option though. You know, when I, when I, I played some quarterback in middle school in my freshman year of high school, I played quarterback and we ran the option back then. You know, this is, uh, late eighties, early nineties. Not many people were throwing the football like they are now. So we ran the option. I played quarterback. So I could run a mean option, uh, Drew, but, uh, I can't throw the football. And I don't think the option game, uh, would have worked this past week against the Saints defense. Yeah, I don't know what would have worked because uh, you know they they literally at one point I mean forget eight in the box they they literally probably didn't even have to man up outside it wouldn't it wouldn't have mattered much but we'll get we'll get back to that in a moment I want to talk about you know high school and, and growing up because your late your late dad um, was uh, you know a hell of a player at LSU as a quarterback interestingly and then then obviously went into coaching. Uh, was it a foregone conclusion growing up that, man, I'm going to be a football player, I'm going to take this as far as I can? Well, um, I loved football. I grew up around it, like you said, and I just, you know, I was always at the facility, um, at, at, at training camp, two-a-day practices, and just always there um, with the other coaches' kids, and we were just always playing football, two-hand touch, and tackle football out there, and uh, just kind of, you know, just living my life uh, as a football coach's uh, son, and, and that's what you do. Uh, so I loved it, and and then all of a sudden, you know, you start putting on the pads and stuff, and, and it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different getting hit, and um, so I had to adjust to that. Um, and at first, really didn't like it. Played running back, um, just didn't really love it. And um, so I, I I liked all sports. You know, I, I also love baseball and basketball, and. Got going into high school, and like I said, I played quarterback. Um, I was small. I mean, I was five foot four hundred and um, fifteen pounds going into my sophomore year of high school when I got my driver's license at fifteen in Louisiana, and uh, not permit, just full blown on license. You know, just ready to rock and roll back then. And, um, and so I wasn't a very big guy, and I, I, I wasn't very good at quarter, playing the quarterback position, and so I, I decided I wasn't, didn't want to play football anymore. And um, that was a tough conversation to have with my dad. I thought about it for months and finally was able to uh, muster up enough courage to tell him. And I just wanted to play basketball, baseball, and didn't really love football anymore. And obviously loved the game, just didn't love playing it. And so at that point, my thought process was, hey, it's going to be basketball, baseball uh, for me in college. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, that's what I was going to focus on. And football was kind of an afterthought for me. And I was – had had no thoughts at that time that I was ever going to play another down of football, and I was I was good with that and content with it. And um, so I, I always loved football, uh, but but when I started playing it, I didn't quite love it as much as I thought I would. When when did you come back to it? I I never realized that. Did, so was there a year hiatus or was it longer? Two years, two years. I I, I didn't play my sophomore or junior year. Um, we ended up getting a new coaching staff um, to my high school. And, you know, they, they were on me my junior year about trying to come back out and play football. They put in a new offense, a passing offense, you know, and, and at that time there, there wasn't many of those, uh, down in South Louisiana in 1993, uh, 92, 93. And they put in kind of a spread four or five receiver, uh, offense and they kept on, uh, you know, just, just bugging me about coming out trying to play wide receiver. And I was like, I don't even want to do I don't even want to mess around with that. Why would I want to do that? I was happy with what I was doing, playing baseball and basketball. And then finally, they kept on and on. And before my senior year, um, that spring, uh, I decided to go out for, for spring football. And they put me at wide receiver. And obviously, like for me, playing wide receiver just came natural, um, catching the football. I was always had pretty good hand-eye coordination. Just catching the football was this natural thing for me. That's what I did. Uh, you know, every single day I'm out there at my dad's practice and all those things, you just throw and catch the football. And so it was a natural thing for me to do. Um, and the route running and stuff kind of came natural. I obviously had to work on that a, a little bit more. Um, and, and then just went out there and had fun and just really enjoyed it and kind of was surprised how much I enjoyed playing wide receiver. Um, I loved it a lot more than quarterback. So I took two years off and then came back my senior year there, um, to, to just play really one year high school football. Had no aspirations of, of going on to college. Didn't want to play college football. Uh, still would, wanted to play baseball, basketball in college and, uh, once again, football for me at that time still was kind of like on the back burner. I didn't think I was going to have the year I had. I just, I just didn't think I would have any opportunities to play football. And 
um, just kind of um, you look back and you just kind of you know, how things work out in life and where, how you turn out. It's just kind of, uh, you know, a lot of things had to go right for me uh, to be where, you know, and, and do the things that I was able to do after that time of my life. Now, you end up going to play for your dad. Now, take us through that, because were were you a walk on and I'm going to go play for my dad or your dad convinced you? Did you have you know, I know you were really, as you said, you're a really good basketball player, baseball player in high school. Um, what how did it evolve that you ended up in Lafayette? Yeah, um, well, I played that one year of high school football. I had a pretty good year. I led the state in receptions. Um, uh, I think I had around 80, 80 catches. And so I had a good year, really good year. Um, and then I started starting to hear from some different colleges. They were interested, but I was a, still a small guy. You know, I was 155 pounds. And, um, so it wasn't like there was a lot of colleges, you know, blowing my phone up, um, trying to recruit me at that time. I, I got a few letters, a few calls. And that was really about it. Um, and so if I if I really wanted to play, it was probably going to be for my dad. And and at um, at that time it was USL. Now it's UL. Um, so I um, I just said, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot and give it a go. And I, I did get a scholarship, um, and probably because probably because my dad was the coach. Um, uh, but I, I I just you know it was like okay I, I was kind of naive at the time too and just like all right I'll just go ahead and give this thing a shot and why not um, and then I kind of planned on trying to walk on for basketball also if that was going to be a possibility along the way to maybe um, give that a go obviously knew the basketball coaches from from just being around the school for for you know since I was in the fifth grade um, so so it's kind of a win win you know just going to go into this thing and just try to have fun with it and, and enjoy it and, and see how it turns out but there wasn't a lot of uh, other options for me if I wanted to play football and so um it was really uh US, USL at the time and or or you know maybe a smaller division 2 type of school I don't know if I ever asked you this. Did, did LSU even offer the opportunity to walk on or or uh where that was not an option at all no, no, LSU, um, they didn't even know who I was. Uh, that wasn't even a flip on their radar. So, uh, no, no even walk on possibility. Um, and, and I probably, you know, look, I probably wouldn't have been able to do that because my dad was a coach an hour away, uh, the head coach. Uh, so that would, that would have been kind of a, uh, odd, uh, situation. Um, you know, the head coach's son goes walk on at a, a, a bigger school there and, in LSU, so for me, that probably was wasn't a choice or an option. Uh, but certainly, they you know they didn't give me that option. Let's just put it that way. What as you look back, was it a, a what kind of experience? I'll just let you describe what kind of experience was it playing major college football where your dad he's not the position your position coach he's he's the head coach. And and that is a different dynamic, especially because, you know, you got another hundred kids on the team and they all know that your dad is the head coach. Yeah. Um, like I said, I was a little naive at first and um, just didn't really think a whole lot about it. Um, and maybe some of the questions from some of the different players uh, on the team and like, why is this guy on the team? But I think for me, you know, honestly, I went there and I kind of showed that I belong you know, right away and, and that I deserve to be there. So that I think that really helped my situation um, is that I, I went out there and, you know, I, I worked my tail off um, and I earned guys respect that way. And then, you know, I showed that I belonged on the football field and that I could, I could play at that level. And so I think when you do that, you earn guys respect and they say, okay, that's, that's why he's here. Um, and so from that perspective, uh, from, from my teammates perspective, I, I, it wasn't, wasn't that hard because early on, like I said, I, I kind of showed that I belonged. Um, but my dad, you know, that was the best five years of my life. It was, it was so awesome. Um, he, uh, you know, coaches kid, you know, I don't, I didn't see my dad a whole lot growing up. Um, obviously, you know, back in the day when you're recruiting, you know, he'd get on the interstate and he's just, you know, all over the place driving around all over the place recruiting. So, um, a lot of hours, um, that, you know, you just don't see your dad. Uh, and, and that was just part of it. You just, just that's the way it goes. So being able to have five years of seeing him every single day um, was just awesome. It was great, and you know he was just such a great coach. He cared about his players. Um, 
uh, it wasn't just about football. Um, he really cared about his guys. And so, um, you know, that, that for me, seeing how he coached guys and how he interacted with, um, um, his players was, uh, you know, still resonates with me today. Have you taken that into, uh, you know, I know you, you've been at Valor and, and is it, it, do you find yourself, uh, looking back at what you learned from your dad being around him as a coach's kid? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just seeing how he handles people. Um, and you know, every, every situation is different. Every, you know, young man, teenager is different when you're trying to coach them or, uh, and, and try to get them to do things maybe that they don't want to do. And so, um, you know, you have to find unique and different ways to, to get them going. And, and also, but you, you got to show them love and appreciation and that you care about them. Um, and, you know, that's what I really learned from him. And certainly for me, that's the way I approach things when, you know, whether I was coaching my kids teams in Pop Warner or, um, or, or helping out at, at, at Valor, uh, the, the last couple of years and uh, coaching wide receivers there. It's just about showing, you know, people that you care about them and that you appreciate them. And, and then, uh, once you do that, it's, you know, you, you have to have a good judgment of, of how to coach kids and everybody's different. And so, uh, but certainly I learned a lot from him watching him. Um, throughout his years and, and how he handled, um, uh, his team and his players. And so, and it, it's something that I still, um, you know, take things from to, uh, today. You know, I had Dave Roberts on, the manager of the Dodgers last week, and it's, and I'm going to bring up a phrase that I so often repeat with, with my three boys and, you know, one's done playing in college, one's playing in college, one's a senior in high school now. And, you know, it's, it's, it is, I don't know, it's probably the foundation of, of who I am and what I'm about. And I'm, and I'm guessing uh, that, that you have this watching you play throughout your NFL career and knowing you a little bit. And that is, even though you were obviously very talented, you end up going in the fourth round, uh, you know, to Baltimore, and I think it was 99. Uh, but do you think your greatest attribute is the fact that you had fuel chip chip on your shoulder as opposed to, hey, you know, I'm a good route runner. I got really good hands. I'm, I'm, I'm quick in a short area. Um, do you think almost your greatest attribute was your, you know, how you competed, though? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You know, um, it's it's just about competing, you know, and I think when you have that, um, you know, everything else just kind of falls in place, you know, because you hate to lose. And so that motivates you to get in the gym, you know, in the summertime, that, uh, run, you know, run extra sprints, um, all of those things, because you just love to compete. You, you hate to fail. You hate to lose. And, um, and for me, that was just everything in my life, you know, whether we're playing card game, whether we're playing golf, um, but on the football field, you know, if I felt like I lost one route in practice or games, it just, it just, it stuck with me. And, um, I hated that feeling. You know, I hated the feeling of that guy on the other side feel like he beat me. Um, and it just stuck with me. And those are the, the situations that it's not the catches. Like you make a catch on a guy. It's like, oh, boom, that's what I'm supposed to do. It's, it's when you feel like you failed or you feel like, hey, that guy's one up on me. Uh, for me, that's what drove me and motivated me. Um, it wasn't the success. It wasn't the, you know, the Super Bowl or the, the touchdowns. Those things kind of go away. The things that stay with you are when, when the, the other team or the other person, uh, beats you. And, um, that's kind of what always drove me is, is I just hated that feeling of feeling like that person got over on me and that person won. Um, and so that, that, that competition, yeah, I mean, that's what it's all about. Yeah, you know, I, I love that. I've always said, and I've said this so many times on broadcast, and I said it on the podcast. I'll, I'll take, you know, if it's football, I'll take fifty-three chip on the shoulder guys over fifty-three pretty guys every day of the week. No doubt, no doubt. That's what it's all about. You can win with those guys because no matter what, they're going to fight and claw for you. Uh, you know, and that's the thing, Drew. You know, in sports, it, you're, you're going to have times. I don't care how good of a you know, team you have or how good an athlete you are, you're going to have times where you struggle. And I look at those, like you said, those guys with the chips on their shoulders and, and the competitors, you know, they're going to be able to battle through those tough times and stick together. It, it's it's the guys that don't have that, that, that buckle when times get tough. And you're going to have tough times in sports. You know, you're going to, during season, 
um, during, uh, you know, off seasons, all those things, you're going to face some adversity along the way. And, and when you have guys that don't have that, that fortitude and that competitive drive, you know, those guys usually fold. And uh, so you're spot on with that, with that uh, comment there. People who, uh, who who know you a little bit in in our town and certainly around the league know that you developed a, a very close uh, you know personal friendship w- with Peyton when you first arrived in Indy. Um, w- w- did you guys gravitate to each other immediately? Obviously, you're going to spend a lot of time together because you're a receiver and he's a quarterback. Uh, uh, what about the evolution of that relationship? Was it kind of instantaneous? Yeah, well, you know, I, I actually met Peyton in college. Um, he, he he puts on this Manning Passing Academy, and, and at the time his dad kind of was the was the you know architect of it, and all the kids were still a, a little bit younger. Peyton was in college, and what they had was is they'd have a camp for quarterbacks, receivers, running backs, tight ends, and high, uh, high school, middle school kids, and they would ask um, college counselors from different schools to you know come participate, be a counselor there. Um, and, and so I got invited to, to do that. And I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I'm like, yes, I get to go see the Mannings, you know, Archie Manning. And, uh, obviously knew who Peyton was at the time and, um, just thought it was going to be a really, really cool experience and, and went there and, and did it and just had a blast doing it. And so we met there. And then, um, so this might have been my, my sophomore year of college. And then every summer after that, I would continue to go back and, and do it. And so we kind of formed a friendship, um, uh, the, then in college and then, um, you know, in the NFL, uh, continued to work his camp, um, and, and, um, obviously played against them, I think once or twice before I signed with Indy. And, um, uh, and then, and then, you know, when, when I did sign with Indy after my fourth year in 2003, that, uh, then, then, you know, the, the friendship really started to form then and, and the foundation of it. And, uh, we're just kind of wired the same, you know, like you talked about, Drew, talked about being competitors and your, your, your work ethic and your drive, what fuels you, you know, um, that's kind of, uh, you know, he, he's at the, the upper echelon of all of those things. And so we just kind of, we, we're just wired the same and how we view things and how we think about things and how we just love to compete at, at, at pretty much everything that we do and just how much we hate to lose. Um, and, and so, it was just natural, kind of one of those things, and um, it just over the years, it's been just, uh, you know, it's been one of those friendships that um, you, you look back on and you just appreciate, um, you know, having somebody like that in your life. And, um, but he, he, he's, he's just uh, um, the type of guy that, you know, what Drew, uh, I played with him for five seasons, four with. Um, and he won here in Denver, his first year in Denver in 2012. And I never saw one day where that guy went into work and didn't have a great attitude and didn't, you know, bust his butt every single day. And that's a hard thing to do, especially at the quarterback position. You go into work sometimes, you just feel like, oh, you know, I just don't have it today. And it didn't matter if it was the off season, you know, seven o'clock workouts. It didn't matter if it was a season. We just lost two in a row. You know, he brought it every single day. And, and to me, that's, that's what really stands out about that guy is, is just, there was no down day. Not one day did I see him not have energy and not bring his work ethic to, to the facility. It's an amazing quality. It really is a remarkable quality. Um, and one of the beautiful things about having, uh, close friends and guys you competed with and guys you spent a lot of time in the locker room with and those relationships never go away. And, and one of the other great things about it is no one can give the other guy shit like somebody who grew up with him, so to speak. So have you worn him? Have you worn him out yet on losing a Barkley? <laughs> well, um, it's coming. You know, sometimes it, it might—it's too early. You know, that right. it might be too early, too so soon. Choose um, when when to hammer it, um, hammer him with that. Uh, but right now, it might be a little bit too early for that because uh, that guy doesn't like to lose. Uh, so you got to kind of know um, when to pick your moments uh, with Peyton, and because uh, because you can't just come out throwing haymakers right away. Not not against him because uh, you know he's that guy that's going to always one up you. You know, you'll be able to fire some shots back. So I just got to pick my moment. But trust me, I got that in my back pocket always. (laughs) It'll be ready to be fired. 
but I'm going to wait for the right time to do it. Do you know what my my favorite line from that whole thing is? Because I, I watched every shot. I was so excited because you have you have two guys who are legitimately, uh, you know, funny and two, you know, different guys, but great characters. I mean, I, I got to know Barkley when I was doing the NBA. And I'll tell you what, I don't know if you know him at all. He He's just he's great. I mean, he's just he's a great, great guy. And, and he legitimately is funny. And obviously, you know, Peyton better than anybody. And um, and how funny he is and the one-liners and how, how quick-witted. So I watched every shot, but when Barkley, when the thing turned around and Barkley looks in the camera and says, hey, B.A. to Brian Anderson, get tell the executives you're going to have to get some programming ready because they're going to close them out. <laughs> yeah, Barkley was on it. He's, uh, I, I don't know him, but he, he's hilarious. I love what he does. I love how... Uh, you know, uh, him and Shaq and those guys, uh, they do such a good job. Uh, but you know, it, it wasn't for me. I don't know what it was. It wasn't as good as the, the one with Brady and, and Woods. Um, that to me was just an epic showdown. And I guess at that time we had no sports going on. Um, and so this one was a little bit different, but I loved it. It was entertaining and you, you had some characters. I think Phil does such a good job and he's, when you watch him coach up Charles, and Charles played well. You know, all the talk about how bad he was, and, and we've seen his swings. But, man, he you can tell he's put some time in, and and, and he really contributed. Um, and they had a good game plan. And, man, they just it, – it, it, I felt bad. I, I felt bad for Peyton and Steph. I mean, it wasn't even a competition there. Um, after the first – you know, winning the first hole, they, they, they lost like four in a row. So it was a, uh, it was a tough day, tough day on the golf course. You know, Stokey, you know what it comes it shows is no matter what, when you're dealing with a pro, it's a different deal. Like Steph's a great player. Peyton's a really good player. I know you're a good player. It's a completely different animal when you're dealing with a pro, especially, I mean, you're talking about one of the greatest golfers ever, but it's it's different. You know, Steph Curry's a plus one. If, if you go out and play with him, he's going to kick your ass, most guys, right? right. But yeah. he, he if, if he played Phil even up with the nerves and the whole bit, he's not going to be within six, seven, eight strokes of him. No, no. It's, it's a different animal. You know, it's, it's, hey, the lights are on now. It's not just the practice field. You know, some people can do it on the practice field, but when the lights come on, it's, it's, all, it's, it's totally different. And you're in his environment, and that guy has seen it all. He's done it all. Um, and obviously that's kind of his home course down there. And so he knows everything about it. But all of a sudden, you know, golf's one of those sports where it's, it's, it's difficult. And, and all of a sudden you start struggling a little bit and you know the spotlight's on you. You feel a little bit different. That, that's not your environment. You know, Steph Curry, his environment is the basketball court, right? You know, you put him on the basketball court, he, he doesn't feel any nerves. You know, he, he's just rocking and rolling. Um, but on the golf course, he's going to start feeling the nerves when he's not playing as well because that's not what he does. You know, same things for Peyton, same things for Peyton and, and for Charles Barkley. Uh, but Phil, that's what he does. That's he knows he's great at that, and and so he doesn't feel any nerves out there. Um, even if, even if he hits a bad shot, he's not second guessing himself, uh, and that's the difference. And it is, it is. It's uh, you know those guys are at a whole other level. More with Brandon Stokely in a moment, but first this from my friends at Ideal Home Loans. Interest rates, folks, are insanely low. I don't think that is an overstatement. I'm not trying to be dramatic. But if you haven't noticed, if you haven't looked to refinance, then you are missing the boat on saving a lot of money. So do as I've done on several occasions and so many others over the last 20 years. Give Ideal Home Loans a call, 303-867-7000. Brent Ivinson's team is simply outstanding. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Once again, their number is 303-867-7000. 303-867-7000. They're going to save you a lot of money, and they're going to make the process really simple. Ideal Home Loans. And now back to more with my man, Brandon Stokely. All right, let me segue for you. Uh, the, the whole thing this weekend, I've kind of, I've seen both sides of this with, you know, should the league have pushed that game back um, or was it, you know, the Broncos and the quarterback room maybe being irresponsible and, and the rules are the rules. And uh, since there wasn't a COVID outbreak, they had to play it. What, what's your take on, on it now that you've had to, you know, talk about it quite a bit and kick it around over the last 48? Yeah, you know, you, you kind of go back and forth a little bit. There's, you know, the NFL, I don't know all their rules. 
rules they have in place. They're changing, seems like, weekly right now and different protocols in place, but certainly the team knows them and the players know them. Um, and so when you when you break these protocols and you, you leave it up to the league, now it's kind of out of your hands. And, and so I think that's when you look at the Broncos situation, that's what those quarterbacks did. Um, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, whether the masks were down for, you know, five minutes, 30 minutes, whatever the case may be, um, they weren't doing what, what they were supposed to do. So now all of a sudden the league, you put it, you put it in the league's hands to decide your fate. And unfortunately, you know, the league didn't push the game back. Um, and I don't know why they didn't do it. I didn't know what the, I don't know what the thought process was, uh, there. Certainly they could have done it. You've seen other games, uh, being moved. Um, I don't know if they just wanted to send a message to the, to the rest of the league that, Hey, if, if, if we catch you on video and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing here and you're around somebody that tests positive, we're just going to take your whole group out for, you know, the four or five days. And, and it doesn't matter if it's quarterback room. Um, and if they thought the Broncos were the easy target there. So, um, but for me, it's, it's, it's one of those situations where, you know, uh, unfortunately they, they didn't do quite what they were supposed to do. Or was it the, was it the worst thing ever? Uh, no, no, it wasn't. Uh, but still, they, they didn't follow the rules like they should have. And now the league, it's, it's the ball's in their court to make this type of judgment. And unfortunately for the Broncos, um, you know, they made the decision not to move the game back, um, which I don't know why. I don't know why they, they didn't do it for the Broncos and they've done it for other teams. Um, but certainly they have their reasoning. And, you know, it just ended up being an embarrassment for the Denver Broncos and it's it just a complete disaster. I mean, that's, I don't know any other way to put it. It was an embarrassment. It was, um, it was just awful. I mean, it was just an awful football game to watch. It put people, um, in harm's way. And, and, um, when you look at certain guys going out there and, and trying to do things that they've never done before and, um, it's just, it wasn't a good situation all the way around. And, um, and it, it doesn't look good for the Denver Broncos. It's a national story, and you don't have a quarterback, and you, you got a guy lining up under center that, you know, hasn't taken one snap in the NFL in a practice or a game, and doesn't know the offense, and and he's playing quarterback. It, it just, it was, it was, uh, it was really bad. Yeah, it was really bad. It's funny. I, I think, and I made this analogy almost. Uh, you know, we had the morbid curiosity when there's a car accident and you're driving by. So I was. You know, I'm going to watch the Broncos anyhow, but I, I was particularly curious to see what it was going to look like. And honestly, after it, it's what I thought it would be. And after a couple series, it was no longer of any interest. I mean, you just keep driving, you know, you keep driving down the road and you hope everybody's OK. And, you know, this kid Hinton gets his 15 minutes of fame. I, you know, feel for him a little bit. But to the point you made, you do put some guys in harm's way. And and, uh, you know, you, you look at what happened with um you know, with, with the, in the running back, you know, situation with Philip Lindsay getting hurt. And, and that's the last thing you want to see happen because, you know, he's he's got to reach down between his legs and try to pick up an errant snap. I mean, it's just it, it's a bad deal all the way around. Yeah, it really, really was. And for me, Drew, it, it was actually worse than I thought it was going to be. Um, and, and I had low expectations. But, you know, I mean, like you said, um, Kendall Hinton, um, the guy that they – Played quarterback for most of the time there. Um, I mean, I, I didn't expect it to be that bad, him throwing the football, because he did play some quarterback in college. Um, but he just wasn't, you know. I mean, like you said, it's not his fault. Nobody's blaming him. You know, he just he tried to go into the worst possible situation you could go into. Uh, but for me, it was still even worse than I thought it would be just overall. Um, and it, it's just, it's just, it's not a good look for the NFL. It's not a good look for the Denver Broncos. But, you know, that's kind of the plan here. I think when you look at the NFL, if they can play a game and, and on schedule, that's what they're going to do. Unless there's a huge possibility of an outbreak, if they can play a game, I don't care if you don't have any quarterbacks, no offensive linemen, you got to figure it out. Um, that's what we're going to do. We're going to keep plowing forward. And, and I think that's the message that, that was sent here. Um, and it's a shame that it was, um, you know, because of the Denver Broncos. I got one for you. It drives me nuts every week. And, and I don't know if you're going to feel the same way I do because, after all, you made your living for a long time and did it well as a wide receiver, you know, slot receiver. Um, the P.I. calls, and I know they're down this year, but still, it is such a game-changing flag, if you will. 
And again, I can't, you can articulate far better than I can. You, you, you did this for a living, you know, the hand fighting and how tough it is for, especially with the rules now for DBs, for corners to cover you guys. I, I still find it, it, it drives me nuts when, you know, flags are thrown and they change games. They change outcomes when two guys are really just competing. It's one thing if, you know, if they, you know, if a guy holds your arm or it's, or it's blatant. Do you find yourself now as, as a fan and, and as a talk show host getting frustrated at the number of PI calls? Drew, I mean, it drives me absolutely nuts. Um, it's just awful. Uh, you see it every single game and you're spot on. Look, it just changes games so much. It's not a five-yard penalty. You know, it's a spot foul plus an automatic first down. You know, these are 40, 50-yard penalties um, and over some hand fighting. It's just awful seeing some of these flags that are being thrown uh, by these referees. It's it's so frustrating. Every time on a on a pass play, you know, you can't celebrate if your team gets a stop because you got to hold your breath. Is there a flag? You're looking for the yellow thing at the bottom of the screen, you know, um, and so that that's that's the way we're trained now because um, these referees just take over football games. Now I'll say this: I'll be I'll raise my hand when I was playing. There was nobody that cried more for passing the fence than I did. Right? I mean, I mean, I'm crying for it. I'm yelling for it. I'm screaming for it. Um, but uh, as a fan, and as, as you look at some of these calls, and like you said, it's just a little bit of hand fighting. Guess what? Guess what? This is NFL football. This is football. It's a contact sport. There are two guys running down the field together. You're going to have a little contact. It's going to happen. Uh, you can't just throw a flag because you have a little contact, a little hand fighting, and you see it multiple times every single game where these refs just change the outcome of a game, and it's a shame. It's it's really a shame. Some of them deserve to be called, of course, but um, sometimes you got to let guys just play football and, and know that there's going to be a little contact along the way. It's a contact sport. It it drives me nuts, and the one that's you know behind it, but but not all too far behind it are some of the holding calls up front. I've seen twice this weekend where a an offensive lineman got bull rushed and embarrassing as it may be, he ended up on his back and the guy naturally, what happened? You know, if you bull rush me and I fall over, chances are you're going to fall over me, right? Because my body's down. And they call holding on the guy who's pancaked. I'm like, come on, man. That's ridiculous. Because they don't see the whole play. You know, they see they see a, the, the end of it, and they assume that the offensive lineman grabbed him and pulled him down. Um, so, I mean, that poor offensive lineman, right? I mean, that's a double whammy there. <laughs> Not only do you get bull rushed, now guess what? The camera's going to be on it, and they're going to replay it two or three times, showing you get bull rushed. And then the announcers are going to say the flag shouldn't have been thrown. Um, and so it's just like, I mean, the poor offensive lineman just wants to go back to the huddle and just try to move on to the next play. And now he's, he's in the spotlight for just getting his tail whipped and getting a flag that shouldn't have been thrown. So uh, just imagine being that guy. I mean, that's, that's, you know, bad, bad deal there. But yeah, look, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it is a tough job, right? It's a tough job to do. Um, and, and I feel the same way you do. Uh, I'd rather them just err on the side of not throwing flags and let's get this game played. Um, and let's let the players decide it. But I think sometimes, too many times, they want to like be the be the guy and be in the spotlight and and and, and say I got to throw. If I don't throw my flag five times a day, you know what? I'm going to get fined. That's just the way it seems sometimes. And sometimes it's better off just letting the players play. Um, there, there's there's a time and place for flags, um, but I think they they've gone overboard uh, with the pass interference calls. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And listen, um, I, I want to watch you know great athletes like yourself go compete and and not the intrusion of, of the flags all the time. Hey, I, I, let me let me fire a couple more at you. Let you get out of here. Yeah, hey, absolutely. Hey, Stoke. Um, when people talk to you, whether it's they call your radio show periodically or they run into you in the store, um, as long a career as you had, you caught a touchdown in, in a in a Super Bowl. You have a couple Super Bowl rings. I mean, you had some some tremendous years uh, for multiple teams. Do people still bring up first and foremost the the last play of the game, the catch on the deflection? Yes, um, that's. Is that number one? Yeah, that's the play, especially around here. You know, when I go back to Baltimore, it's more about the Super Bowl and the 
the touchdown on the Super Bowl. Uh, but I think the majority of the people um, now, when I see, especially around Colorado, but but even even other places, and and, and not many people recognize me or, or or know who I am. But when they do, it's kind of oh, you're the one that caught that deflection against Cincinnati late in the game that ran around, you know, along the goal line. So that is the play that is brought up the most. Uh, and so it's it's just such a cool, fun play, and and I I love it. I love it when people bring it up because it's just a great memory, and it's one of those things that you know those plays that you just don't see happen in the NFL. I mean, these things just don't happen. You know, eighty something yard touchdown with the amount of time they had on the clock just just in the way that it happened um, is just probably a one of. And so it's just cool to be a part of that play and just kind of right place, right time, lucky to be there. And, um, I don't know. It's just one of those things where, uh, but it's it's obviously a great memory. And if you think back to, and it's the first game of the year. You know, that was the thing. It was the first game of the year. You want to start off as a team and, and, and get a win and, and play well and, and to win a football game like that on the road. um that, that you know, obviously, it'd be great to do it at home. But when you do it in somebody else's house, and you, and you win a game like that, uh, and then you're able to go in the locker room to celebrate with you guys, and you get on the airplane and you you fly back with them, and you just kind of you got everybody to celebrate with. And um, it's just uh, those those are the you know that's that's why you play sports, and those are the things you are, you remember the most. Um, not the wins and the losses, and um, it's just uh, those moments, and then. You know, the after those moments, just being able to the the time that you spend with your your teammates, just celebrate and how much fun those times are. You know, Stoke, it had to be one of those rare things where your reaction as an athlete was the same as everybody watching. Like, <laughs> holy shit, the ball just dropped in his hand. The Broncos are going to win the game. I mean, I just remember that ball floating in the air. Bat it up. Oh, Stokely down the sideline. Can they catch him? Oh my gosh, my legs felt like they were, you know, a thousand pounds. Stokely, wow! And then just turning around, kind of looking like, just don't get caught, don't get caught. Touchdown, Denver! Unbelievable! And just catching it and saying, you know, just to myself, like, where is everybody at? Like, because I, I, before the play, you see they're playing just a soft, soft coverage. Um, and there's no chance to get behind them. And all of a sudden, they got so many people back there, right? All of a sudden, the ball just floats up in the air. It seems like it's in the air forever. And then, you know, I'm, I'm ready to catch it and get hit right away. Those are the thoughts that were going through my head as I'm running and just kind of in shock and disbelief of, oh, my gosh, is this really happening? And then, you know, running down the, the end, end zone line there and, and then going in the end zone and just – being, you know, mobbed by your teammates, Tony Scheffler, Orton, uh, Carell Buckhalter, and just like, just, just like, oh my gosh, this is, this is just flat out unbelievable. Am, am I in a dream here? And just the excitement. And then on top of that, we were going to go for two points. We were going for two, we had to go for two because I forgot what it, it put us up eight by four or five, and we're going to try to get to six or seven. And, um, and so uh, we were going to go for two, uh, but we were so tired and exhausted from celebrating that we had to call a timeout, and we had no chance to convert that two-point conversion. <laughs> two, you know what's about that two-point yeah. conversion, and um, so that was uh, that was that. We, of course, we didn't make the two-point conversion, but it didn't matter. But that was a play that just, for so many different reasons, just it's just one of those plays where it's um, it's just it's just an unbelievable play and just yeah. a place and time for me. You know what? The storied history of the Broncos that that is that is a top ten play uh, in their history, uh, at least for me. I mean, that, that was a pretty wild one. Hey Stoke, I'll let you fly, man. It's uh, it's pleasure catching up. I appreciate your time and continued success in your in your in your new world. It's not new because you've been doing it for a while now, but uh, in the radio world. Well, Drew, I appreciate you, buddy. Thanks for having me on and love listening to you on the call and continue to do great work. And um, hopefully we can have a little bit of a bounce back season from the Rockies this year and looking forward to seeing some baseball coming up and, and hearing you on the call. And uh, once again, appreciate you having me, buddy. Yeah, thanks for that. And uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Stay well and, and best to your family, man. All right, Drew. See you, my man. You know, Brandon Stokely's a good man. And he, and he comes out in an interview. Sometimes he, he can listen to – you know, somebody speak in a sound bite and you try to get a feel for who they are. It's one of the reasons I enjoy uh, doing kind of a long form interview, which we do here on, on the podcast each and every week. 
because you get a feel for for who somebody is, for their personality, for what makes them tick, and you can just tell. And, and I've had the good fortune of, of spending a little time around Stoke. Just a good guy, humble, um, fun to be around, and uh, I, I'm excited for his success in the radio business. It's not surprising. He, he had a sneaky good career, too, now. He had 397 receptions over 14 years, so he battled a lot of injuries, 39 touchdowns, two Super Bowl rings, including that touchdown we alluded to in 01 for the Ravens. It was the first touchdown of the game for Baltimore. Um, you can't uh, – that's nothing to, to, to sneeze at, a couple of Super Bowl rings and a 14-year career in the National Football League. So well done, Brandon Stokely. You can catch him. On the fan uh, each and every day with Zach By. They have a terrific show. That'll do it for our show this week. Next week, we will reconvene. We'll uh, probably be talking a little bit more baseball because I'm sure there'll be some more deals that have taken place now that the uh, virtual winter meetings are uh, a few days away. So we'll get into that and some other topics as well. Y'all stay safe, stay well, and uh, we'll talk to you next week on the Drew Goodman Podcast. 